Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 156th episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that will gladly exchange t-shirts for judge promos. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering, finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. at MTG Critic on Twitter. My co-host, as always, is Travis Allen, a.k.a. at Wizard Bumpin', and we're here to help you folks make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Good evening, James. Uh, how are you doing tonight? Very good, very good. It's been another very busy week in MGG Finance. It has. I personally spent over $500 this week, uh, which I don't do a lot yeah, anymore. I, mean, I had. Uh, I was telling you off cast, I've got the 7000 worth of Abu credit converted into $5,000 worth of Magic cards that are coming back my way. And I also spent about... A, Something just short of 5,000 US on specs this week because it's just insane, everything that's going on. Yeah, plenty of movement. And in fact, two of our cards that we've talked about in the last couple of weeks are pop up in our segment one, too. So, well, all four of the picks that I laid out last week spiked. So, did they? Yeah. Uh, uh, I didn't actually look. Yeah, last week we had. Uh, Word of Invention, oh, yeah, the Word of Invention, right, 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 yeah. Doubling Season Judge Promos, Oath of Nisa Foils, and Westvale Abbey Foils, all of which have now climbed significantly. Hmm. Fun week here. Um, all right, well, let's get into it. Our show is sponsored by MTGPrice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at MTGPrice.com to manage your collection, track your specs, and... Uh, oh, sorry, chat on Discord. I forgot that one. Probably and the most articles. important part right now. <laughs> Yeah, it's been quite active. Um, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. And uh, what do we have on our agenda this week? What four segments might we possibly be exploring? All right. Segment one, we will talk about baked apple pie recipes. Ooh. Uh, yeah. Segment two will be your favorite furniture. Uh, segment. I was, th- hmm? I was thinking you- segment three, we might suggest that overseas arbitrage is not useful but then much much later admit that it actually is and then tell people to do it <laughs> I'm, I'm okay with that sure okay. uh at okay. the start of year seven we can switch gears <laughs> uh, and then finally segment four uh makeup in 2019 and the new you what top brands do we recommend to bring out your inner glow oh that's that's a delightful new segment I think everyone will appreciate. Uh, I wish I could speak to that. I don't actually know anything about makeup. Uh, I know lots about inner glow. I'll, oh, geez, I just got to get ready. Um, all right. So let's start our, start off with the aforementioned were of invention foils, moving from something like $8, although you were probably buying them closer to 10 by the time we talked about it. And in, on here it says twelve forty nine. Um, but I suspect that because these prices are derived from TCG market, they are not entirely accurate as to what's going on. Uh, let me just double check here what the cheapest word of invention foil you can buy is currently on TCG player. Yeah, and while James checks out real quick, it was his pick of the week last week. I also wrote about it like three weeks ago. So the, between the two of us, we we put a lot of attention on this card, which, um, you know, we mentioned last week, this included the 50 copies that Channel Fireball had getting bought out. 
Uh, so there's definitely some copies in the hands of speculators, but that doesn't stop this from being a worthwhile pick, I think. Well, and the most important angle has nothing to do with the content creators. It's all about the fact that the deck continues to do well. In fact, it shows up in the modern top eight that we're going to review again later today, as it has in several of the top eights recently, um, which is why it's moving. And in fact, there's only seven listed seven separate listings on TCG player for the foils right now. Cheapest you can get it at is about 15. Once you get through those four copies, you're talking 20 and above. So um, looks like it will go the way of the dinosaur for at least a few years. I would guess that these, if this deck keeps doing well in modern and modern stays uh, popular for another two or three years, War of Invention is probably not going to see a reprint anytime soon. If it does, it could show up in a commander product as a non-foil, in which case the foils could have a shot at 40 or 50. So... Yeah, I'm actually really annoyed at our listeners for taking those 50 channel fireball copies before I decided if I wanted any. Yeah, it, and, I, and I'm pretty sure one of the Discord uh, users did admit that they went deep on the card. So, um, yeah, probably he's a jerk, and I hit him. <laughs> hey, all they're right, just, they're, they're just doing what they pay us to do. Yeah. The, um, all right. So next on the list for this week, uh, looks like we've got grinding station non-foils moving from four to six in theory on the back of the kci uh banning um, players pretty quickly figured out that you could build a equally nefarious looking uh, artifact based deck that made use of semblance anvil semblance anvil um from scars of mirrodin i believe and i think we heard about that roughly just before we showed up at gp toronto and i remember us picking up some semblance anvils on the floor if i'm not mistaken i'm pretty sure i picked some up locally in toronto last week as well yeah we might have been looking for these uh i know no we were looking for these at toronto i came back and picked my bulk and found eight or nine the price is is already coming down though uh what so semblance anvil is going to show up on our list later um i think i ended up listing i have a copy listed at like 750 or something eight bucks us and it it hasn't sold it and it's probably not even the cheapest one anymore so um you know there was a huge rush on these they're starting to pull back grinding station is gonna probably you know the rush on grinding station wasn't as hard so you're not gonna see as quite as much of a pullback um so now everyone's just kind of primed and waiting to see if the deck does it again because uh, it was really only what four days ago that the guy posted the five vote list and it was one five vote list yeah. so it's still this is still ultra new in the world of magic i did manage to hype sell uh an mp co- lp mp copy though for 25 that i bought for three bucks oh, that's so nice it's that like that first like eight hours it just gives bananas if you have any copies floating around if you're sitting around at home and you notice a spike and there's shops within striking distance that might have it you might as well just make the trip worst case yeah. scenario you end up drafting <laughs> no problem yeah, if you're if if it's if it's not hard to, sure. Yeah. Um as for grinding station, it's actually the foils that are have caught my attention. I bought I think eight at GP Toronto and I bought a few more overseas. There's no non near mint foils left on TCG player, and there's only three listings for lightly played foils between twenty and thirty. So feel pretty confident that people are gonna get be able to get out of that card, the foils at least, in the thirty to forty dollar range. Give it a little more time. Yeah, I don't doubt it, but I will warn our listeners not to buy them, be not to own them for themselves. The 
uh, mirrored in block foils are all really bad. You basically can't tell they're foil. So like, As don't, said many times. yeah. And I just, just like, I figure people probably don't remember or notice or whatever, uh, or if they're new to the cast, right. Just don't own them for yourself. Just keep a non foil and wait until they put this in modern masters nine, nine or whatever. <laughs> I, I should send you the lovely f- pictures of my foil grinding stations that I took that display that they actually have lovely foiling under the right light. Well, sure. Right. Like that, you know, give it the right light. And I, and it could be, it could have, it, it's possible there were variances in printing at the time. I don't know. So maybe this, maybe some of the copies actually came out really well, but most that I have seen have not. I mean, I would, I would argue that sleeved foils defeat half the purpose of foils period. Um, especially on sleeves. sleeves. Well, even if you're, especially if you're double sleeving, like almost no matter what sleeves you have, you're still getting a very a much more muted uh, version of the approach. It'd be very interesting if Magic could at some point put out a nearly indestructible version of the cards, like Magic cards for the beach kind of thing, and print some cool old decks or something. I mean, they can. Like we have that that technology exists. If you're a poker player, you're aware of um Chem cards, K E M, which is I believe a brand, and there are other brands. And they're plastic. They're plastic playing cards. Very high quality. Uh, they can withstand a lot of abuse. They're, you can't really rip them. They're awesome cards. And anyone who played poker, especially during the boom, it was worth forking over the 20 bucks for a deck. Because if you were really playing poker at home frequently, you would burn through a paper deck uh, at least once a night, possibly faster. But these really lasted. So they're great. But you were paying 20 bucks for 52 cards. And those were playing cards. You know, in order for Wizards to put out a pack like that, each deck would probably you know the 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 production costs on that would probably be somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 to 30 times more than a normal magic card and that's before they pass on the, the cost to you um so the technology exists but like it's just so hard with a a collectible card game like this right what would you pay for world championship decks reissued as beach playable me zero dollars other Not people interested. No, no. But other people, sure. I'm sure there's a market for it. I guess the question is whether it come in under production costs. But you, they could probably get away with charging like maybe 70 bucks. Now, see, what would be interesting? Oh, now this is interesting. I wonder how the reserve list works in the fine print. Because could you print non-paper product and have it count as not as not violating the reserve list like vintage decks for the beach yes they could print power sets in a plastic <laughs> a plastic card right those those like high quality poker cards it's not a magic card and it is distinctly different it would not be legal in competitive magic because yep. the weight would be different but you could probably yep. play with it in whatever deck at home and nobody would care interesting i mean i don't think they're going to do that because they have no interest in drawing attention to those formats but it's a cool sounding product yeah um all right, so next on the list, we've got Extirpate from Modern Masters. Non-foils and foils made a move. Non-foils in particular, moving from about 650 to 12, so about 80% plus gains. Um, I don't really see a lot of reported modern usage for this card. It's mostly a legacy card as far as I can tell. Yeah, I don't get this either. It pops up here and there very rarely, but uh, whatchamacallit, Surgical Extraction is way more popular of an effect. I wonder if this is someone seeing how expensive Surgical Extraction is and just thinking that they're going to force extirpate as a secondary option i don't know i don't really have a good answer for it well it's interesting that it has split second this must have showed on up on a list somewhere that's just not showing up on goldfish 
maybe to deal with like Arclight Phoenix or something. Maybe, maybe it's the Arclight Phoenix tax, Arclight Phoenix tech, and like yeah. we just haven't noticed that. Hmm. I'll do a little bit more research on that one. Um, we also have Overseer of the Damned, which was some arch enemy Nickel Bolas, a product I have sitting over on my shelf that I think we've played all of once. So apparently, I'm supposed to recoup some of that cost by pulling this newly minted five dollar card out of there. I was at three bucks before. Um, there was a C Commander 2014 printing, and other that than that, nothing, right? Uh yeah, C14, the Arch Enemy product, um, and that's it. This is the the supply is actually quite low. Uh, there's basically none of the Arch Enemy one. There's a couple more of the C14 ones that are are cheaper. So if you want a couple of these, go for the C14 ones. But there's not a lot there either. I don't know if somebody emptied the inventory on both halves of this recently. I don't. We don't have that data. Uh, but in any case, the supply is quite low. It's a very, and it's a cool card, so I don't hate it. Um, and real quick, reported in 40, 4,500 EDH rec decks. So yeah, reasonable level. My, yeah, my, my biggest concern would be not being able to get out of these before a reprint. Um, extirpate by the way, zero modern decks, uh, on MTG top eight starting in 2018. Like the last one was 2017. So yeah, you got me on that one. Uh, Zulaport Cutthroat out of Masters 25 foils just under two to about four dollars. This is uh the little brother to Blood Artist Zulaport Cutthroat. I actually talked about a couple weeks ago. I was referring to one of the other editions, I think. But you'll see there's some movement on the foils here. I think you're going to see that across the board um, as we move forward. Yep, that was a good pick. Um, Skull Clamp from the Vault Exiled version, uh, going from 12 to 25. Love it or hate it. Uh, FTV copies will move when there's motion on the regular card quite often. Um, for instance, Mox Diamond from FTV Relics is like a five or $600 card. And one of the things I just got back from, or that's currently in the mail from Abu, um, filtering out my buy list credit. Uh, so not particularly surprised to see this moving on the back of probably Tesa, right? Um, I, yeah, it seems like that would make sense. I mean, Skull Clamp is like one of the top five most popular cards in EDH or something, something like that. So makes sense, I guess. It's also possible, you know, FTV exiled foils. The FTV foils tend to be cheaper on every card that was in FTV across the board. Um, but Skull Clamp is so popular. Maybe it's just people finally cracked and decided to pick up the crummier foils just because they were cheaper than every other option. Wait, do you draw four cards when no. you creature dies with this on? Two. No, four, Two. right? Because Tasa doubles. Oh, if Tasa doubles it, yes. Yeah. Oh, that's disgusting. Play. Definitely a Tasa yeah. card. Well, I mean, it's absurd. It's definitely absurd there. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Skull Clamp was, uh, has always been absurd. It's, it's probably one of the most broken magic cards that a new player would not immediately recognize as broken. Um, yep. But if you ever played against Affinity when Affinity was allowed to run this, it was just insane. Hey, you I get to tell this. I get to tell this mini story because at this point in time, there's probably enough people that haven't heard it. Skull Clamp was literally a mistake because originally this was your creature gets plus one, plus one. Uh, but they determined it was too powerful. So they changed it to plus one, minus one, <laughs> but then didn't test it and didn't realize the fact that now you could chain this across your X ones to fill your hand. Uh, and that is the story of how Skull Clamp came to be. Kind of nifty. Uh, yeah, following that, that is hmm? that, that that's a major failure. Yeah. Well, I did probably don't make changes to cards without testing them anymore. Uh, I would imagine that if they have a giant board somewhere in the wizard's R and D pit, 
and they have gigantic mistakes and lessons written on them. One of them is don't change cards without testing them. Uh, you know, for each card that each card that we have the ban and standard, write the lesson that we had to have learned from that and make sure it's well, always I mean, visible. Let's question what the lesson for Nexus of Fate will be, or you know, Felidar Guardian. <laughs> um smuggler's copter yeah the felidar the the felidar guardian is a lesson they refuse to learn because they have printed that effect like every time they write the words when or uh or yeah when and then on a magic card they shouldn't let that out the door without intensive testing like if if it's just a triggered ability you need to check that out because they've put that virtually that same text out on like three different cards, and it has been a problem every time. Well, and comes comes into play untap or comes into play blink. <laughs> yeah, it's notoriously dangerous in in Magic the Gathering. So yeah, so I mean, we talk about them having a big board of mistakes they have to learn from, but apparently not everyone's looking at it. Uh, following that is World Purge out of Shadowmoor foils four and change up to nine. This was a big old spell back from Shadowmoor. Uh, let me see. Let me get the text here for you. Return all permanents to their owner's hands. Each all permanents, so everything. Each player chooses seven cards and then shuffles the rest into their library. Empty all mana pools. So it basically resets the game. Everyone draws seven and loses all their permanents. Doesn't touch the life totals. Not sure where sudden uh, attention would come from on this. Maybe somebody played a weird world, world purge deck on stream somewhere. Uh, other than that, I mean, it's just a shadow more foil. Uh, so probably just somebody bought the last cheap copy. Yeah. Harrow foils from Zendikar, uh, original Zendikar, 425 to 931, popular card in EDH and specifically Lord Windgrace decks. Um, Zendikar is also like a decade ago at this point. So, um, you know, original foils draining out, no big surprise. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Harrow's a cool card. I tried to make that work both play-wise and money-wise more than once and couldn't get there. Um, reported in 13,000 and a half decks on EDH rack. So that says most of, gives us most of the story. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, a lot safer in EDH where you're not worried about somebody countering it and turning your three mana spell into stone rain yourself. Um, Nullstone Gargoyle out of Ravnica, non-foils, under a dollar up to about three and change. Uh, this is like the nine mana four or five flyer that counters the first non-creature spell or counters wait the text on this is very simple i can figure this whatever out. the first non-creature spell each turn is played counter it thank you there you go uh the supply is really low market price is still under a dollar i wasn't sure what it was and james uh reminded me that this is uh from nikia of the old ways since that doesn't allow you to play non-creature spells you might as well make it hard for everyone else nelson gargoyle is a creature yeah um and the foils like pop really hard they're like basically non-existent so that's a card you might have sitting around in a binder somewhere they might want to check on. Yeah, for sure. Worth looking for that one. Uh, and ditto the next cards from this is the same reason. Primordial Sage is basically Beast Whisperer writ large um, from original Ravnica. Um, not return to Ravnica, not return to return to return to Ravnica, but from Ravnica, uh, City of Guilds. Um, and the foils went from about 10 bucks to almost 40 um, Pretty old, only ever reprinted in non-foil, I believe. And certainly good alongside Beast Whisperer and, and Nikia of the Old Ways decks. Yeah, it's it's, it's arguably worse than Beast Whisperer, um, simply because it's more expensive. But that doesn't stop it from being useful. If you're going to play Beast Whisperer, you probably want to play Primordial Sage. It's worth it anyways. And there is only the one foil from Ravnica. 
It was also in Commander 2014 and one of the anthologies. Uh, semblance anvil uh this is one we talked about earlier non-foils 250 to 10 technically um the foils as well are kind of all over the place like i said i have one listed at like seven or eight bucks it hasn't sold so it hasn't quite caught yet uh but there was a big rush on these uh i'm not in a rush to sell at the moment it's a powerful card does some cool stuff Uh, i'm gonna give it a couple days another week or two to see if the someone can make the new KCI build work because if they can, you'll probably see this. It, let me tell you this way. If the new KCI build works, the price will definitely stick and probably climb from 10. I know people tried Semblance Anvil builds of KCI in the past couple years, but the thing is they didn't have Scrap Trawler back then, which is, which is also what took KCI from like a tier four fringe deck to banned. Yeah. Uh, so I think that, you know, anything that you're seeing happen in KCI that failed three years ago is fresh and worth trying again. Semblance Anvil included. Yeah. And I mean, there's still no foils. Like the market is not refilling the foils very easily because where would you get them from? Yeah. The ones that speculators purchased, some of us already managed to flip um, out to people that actually want to play with them. And I was, I didn't even know Semblance Anvil existed as a card. So having like reviewed it as it started to pop, I was like, yeah, like, how is this not broken earlier? Like, did exile a card and then all your artifacts cost two less forever? Uh, it has been tried time and time and time again, which is probably why the inventory is what it is, because it's not like there were millions of these, at least the foils, not millions of foils sitting around waiting for a home because people kept trying it. And it's good in their EDH decks and they tried it in modern and they tried it here and there. Uh, so there's already been a pe- an, an appeal for this card. Um I think, which is why the inventory is what it is right now. That's probably underplayed in EDH, to be honest. I mean, it almost certainly uh, fits into things like Joyra, Weatherlight Captain, Sidria, Galvanic Genius, Karn, Silver Golem, Hope of Girapur, Kozilek, both versions of Kozilek, Sram, Senior Edificer, Brea, Ethereum Shaper, Mishra, Artificer, Prodigy. I mean, <laughs> there's no shortage of artifact-focused EDH generals that can make use of this card. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's quite possible that it's underplayed. You know, having having to pitch a card to put it into play and then um, it getting destroyed is kind of a bummer. That's part of what keeps it from being good enough in, like, modern for the most part. But in EDH, it's another story. And, you know, unless your group is running a lot of graveyard, a lot of artifact hate, this is still plausibly decent um you really only have to play probably two to three cards at a reduced cost before it's worth it so uh worth keeping in mind well in a deck like joy or weatherlight captain you draw a card when you play an artifact so you know pays you off right sure. away helps quite a bit the um anyway um so yeah foils i already sold one other people told me they sold some we'll see if uh some more i mean what really it really needs now once you get past that initial 5-0 is a top eight finish somewhere yeah, yes, it needs to show up somewhere good, which kind of segues into our topic but, from last week, because now even if a top eight's a GP, are you going to know? Yeah, they'll they'll just hide the fact that Matt and Nass won another GP and no harm, no yeah, foul. Yeah, this is really weird because now so much of the card prices are based on, essentially card prices are based on demand and people want cards because they, they know they're good. But if, if they held a GP, and let's say they held a GP and a weird deck one, uh, like something totally out of the blue, right? But there was a there was for whatever reason a total coverage blackout, and no words were written about that event. And the only way that people knew were the people who were in the room and saw it. 
I don't think that card would spike. No one would really know. Even if their friends went home and talked about it, you wouldn't have that critical mass of people picking up the deck and trying and playing it on stream to really push that deck. And then people wouldn't really catch on. But this deck could be the best deck in the format. But if no, not enough people are playing it, nobody's going to know. The price isn't going to go up. And in this world, you bought a card, in the, the best card in the best deck that should raise in price, and it doesn't because the, no one talks about it, no one plays it, it doesn't show up. It'd be like if Goryeo's Vengeance never got figured out, right? It's essentially the same thing. So it has a weird effect on finance getting rid of the coverage because you could end up where these awesome decks exist and there's just not enough people talking about it. It doesn't gain traction. See, I'm not sure I really buy into that logic. What I think is happening, and the rest of the year will prove this out one way or the other, is that as we've discussed, they're really betting that they don't need that coverage to do to A, market the game, and B, move product for themselves or for their LGS partners that want to move signals. Um, what they're thinking is it's still going to get noticed by somebody like Saffron Olive who's going to run it on stream and then write an article about it and then post his YouTube channel and the overall exposure might be delayed, but they still get there. So, for instance, like the Sultai Turns deck that showed up as a 5-0 list but wasn't really covered anywhere, um, uh, you know, was talked about on social media. Saf picks it up, throws it together for his stream for the week, then it goes to YouTube, etc. And, you know, people are talking about Wilderness Reclamation and Modern. So, we'll see if that, you know, the what deck... Uh, what tech tech emerges and in what kind of uh, pattern vis-a-vis social media plus content creators. And it will be very interesting to see how that rolls out um, across the rest of 2019. Yeah. And I, I just, I want to stress that my, I'm not saying that like nothing will ever spike because no one knows. It wasn't that. It's just, I guess it, it's harder for that information to travel. There's a lot more friction than there was. So that's that's the right way a to couple times a couple times it might slow something down and it is conceivable that it could like to the point that it doesn't catch the way it would otherwise but it just it adds friction let's go with that yep uh desert serodon out of Amonkhet foils a dollar to four this is a popular topic a popular card in the newish builds of living end um, it cycles for red. Living End used to play Architects of Will and a couple other odds and ends, more like blue-black cyclers. The latest builds of Living End tend to be uh, more black and red cyclers. There's a Horror of the Hunted Lands or something, Desert Serodon. Mastered. Monstrous Carabit is still a target, uh, still used. I'm really annoyed about Monstrous Carabit. I bought foils a while ago, and those haven't taken off, despite being the most prominent cycler in dredge decks. Uh, if you guys could buy those out, I would really appreciate I I- it. Yeah, I think I have some of those sitting around too. Yeah, uh, it was uh, that might have been one of my best picks and it never took off. Um, but there you go. I mean, really, you can probably sit on these even at four bucks for foils. You might want to hang out, see if you can get like eight or nine because you're, yeah, you're not going to see them again. Not anytime soon. Not going to, yeah, exactly. You got you got a couple of years on that one. So that, that can just go into the deal with it later box. Yep. Um, I have my box of don't sell now. <laughs> It's about twice as big as the currently selling box. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's pretty fun to go through there about once a month and go, oh, that's ready for buy listing. Yeah, I, I have a stack. <laughs> I don't have a box. I have a pile. <laughs> yeah. Well, like it was, and things that came out of there recently are things like foil cyclonic rifts after sitting on them for a year and a half or so. Um, foil living ends. Um, foil KCIs and amulets of vigor. Um, you know, all sorts of 
good stuff that shows up er on early lists and people say, ah, that's not going to get anywhere. And then that NAS wins the tournament. Things go, things go well. Um, All right. So Basilica Bellhaunt, Ravnica Allegiance foils from $2 to $10 on the back of standard usage. And I think because it's only available in an ancillary product, if I'm not incorrect. Basilica Bellhaunt's only in... uh, I got that wrong. Am I thinking about the wrong card? Is Basilica Bellhaunt the 3-4? Yeah, it's the 4-mana 3-4 that uh, each opponent discards a card and you gain 3 life when you put it in the play. I thought that was just a normal uncommon. That's just a normal uncommon. That's not the one I'm talking about. Um, Yeah, that's just on the back of standard usage. Scab Clan Berserker out of Magic Origins foils from $3 to $20. I'm not sure. I think it's the mono red builds in modern that's driving that. I mean, even then, well, I don't get that. Uh, I think it's the mono red prison builds, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, mono red prison uh, and mono red phoenix, apparently. Anything related to phoenix is going to be worth another look. So, yeah, this is a mono red version that we've looked at before um, that's top eight a couple times. With four Monastery Swift Spear, two Soul Scar Mage, four Arc Like Phoenix, and two Bedlam Reveler, and other versions of it um, have made use of uh, Scab Clan Berserker here or there. Hmm, I have not seen that. I would guess it's probably sideboard tech against Storm or something. Or other, or in the mirror match. Is it good in the mirror? This, that must be what it is. Yeah, because it's whenever an opponent casts a non-creature spell, it shocks them. And you have to play a bunch of non-creatures to get your phoenixes back, right? So this is a card that the phoenix decks play in order to uh, punish their opponents for trying to reanimate their phoenixes. That's what That must be what it is. I mean, I'm looking at a bunch of lists. It doesn't look like it's used consistently, but I do find it here. Here's a list that five owed on Magic Online where they used had a three of in the sideboard. Yeah, it must be anti. It must be tech for the mirror. The Phoenix tech for the mirror. I'm not saying it's good, but that's what I see as the use case here. Well, and there's other decks that want to fire off a whole bunch of spells. That's kind of like a theme going in across multiple decks in modern. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it gives Red another tool there as well. So all right. Works against works against semblance anvil builds if those get yeah I, I would definitely be selling the heck out of this because this is extremely meta dependent and also a sideboard card so you know just dump these out the door as fast as you can at the same time probably not on the reprint docket anytime soon and origins is a few years back and I don't think Phoenix is getting kicked out of the meta anytime soon I mean all the graveyard hate in the world is present and people are running surgical extraction main right now and the deck's still doing well yeah hmm um all right so wrapping up the list we got attunement from urza saga just an old rando card from a dollar to 11 in theory um and then breaching hippocamp foils uh, one of the biggest gainers of the week from 30 cents apparently to something like six dollars which might be sticky because it's the it's one of the only forecasting costs untap creatures that you can run in vanifar the, uh, the for, only one, I think. Um, so, until they print another one, you've probably got a window to get out of these when you, whenever you feel like it. I find it hard to believe the foils on this were only thirty cents. Uh, but what well, was a do nothing card before Vanifar? Yeah, the, um, people people technically played it in uh, versions of Splinter Twin or or variants of Splinter Twin because it didn't get uh, Brupticade. 
Um, so you didn't play it like over deceiver eggs are typically, but you might've played it as a fifth copy and maybe the fourth copy. Uh, and it was still useful in EDH otherwise, cause it was another creature that untapped stuff. So if you ever play, we're playing birthing pod, it was useful there. So it's not like it had sure. zero play, which is why I'm looking at a 30 cent foil and I don't quite believe it, but maybe. Whenever I crack foreign boxes of standard product, which doesn't happen much anymore, but I was doing that for a while, um, while they were available at cheap prices. The I would always take all the garbage foils and just put them away. So mm-hmm. I just have these like plastic boxes that are airtight that I I sleeve all the foils, like even the garbage ones, and put them in these boxes. And every so often I get to go in and pull out like a foil Russian breaching hippocamp like I did last week. It's hmm. fifty. I also have a giant stack of foils, although it includes a lot of like like ogre gear breaker, I don't know, some nonsense from gate crash that was just ugh, a lot of bad foils in that box <laughs> yeah all right um i've got a real spicy set of picks this week but there's a catch mm. the catch is you really want to be buying these in europe so let this be maybe the set of picks that finally gets your ass in gear to go make a friend on a forum on Twitter, on Facebook, on the MTG and Finance Discord, MTG Price yeah. Discord. People, multiple people this week asked me how they could get that set up and started talking to each other on our Discord. So we do have Europeans in the group. We have lots of North Americans in the group. So relationships are being struck. If and you're if you're European and you're listening to this cast, you can probably find some people willing to do business with you in our Discord. And the model, people have been asking me what the model is. The model, uh, you can do it so that someone's just doing you a favor. You can do it so that, uh, you know, someone can do you a favor that lives over there and is related to you or is a friend and doesn't know anything about magic. Or you can use a shipping service or you can pay people a cut of your action. But probably the most productive way to do it is just to make a friend and trade services. So generally what I do is I share my picks early with my trading partners in Europe. Um, They buy alongside me a lot of the time. They send me their cards with my cards and I sell them alongside mine in various places. So, um, you know, I get Judge Foil Imperial Seals and I sell a bunch of them on eBay and then I sell a couple for my partner and then I sell more of mine and so on and so forth until we're both sold out. Mm -hmm. Um, And that works really well. Um, they can also, you know, it can also go in reverse if they want something from North America. Like one of my partners asked me for a play mat from GP Toronto, which I failed to actually provide because <laughs> I was, wasn't in the event in question and they sold out by the time I registered, but I was really more than willing to do so. Um, and that's the kind of, you know, favor you can do, or you can be like Travis and send your shipping partner, you know, refrigerators and whatever. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so first of all, props to that guy asking for one thing and you being on site and failing to get one for him. <laughs> but uh, secondarily, yeah, the guy that one of my contacts in Europe, um, he's not even looking for uh, magic stuff. He's got his eye on all sorts of odds and ends that basically are just impossible. Just like, you know, geeky collector's items that you can't really get in Europe nearly as easily. But, you know, they put out here for marketing pushes um you know like a uh, rick and morty stuff comes to mind so uh that you know that you you can provide access to a market that you don't really think about but other people might want to get their hands on because the, the bottom line is this it's been like three years since we started targeting europe pretty heavily and <laughs> the arbitrage gap is still in place and 
in some ways it seems like they respond to certain trends faster than they used to but in other cases they really don't and especially with edh focused cards um the gap is like big enough to drive a truck through so you owe it to yourself to at least kick the can around and try to sort it out um and here's why um, if we believe that War of the Spark is a Planeswalker set, and I think we pretty much know that that's confirmed now because the promo video they put out last week showed like 36 Planeswalkers um, in these stained glass window things, um, which I interpret to be the 36 Planeswalkers that are being printed in the set. Go ahead and discount all the theories other people are floating about how the Planeswalkers are losing their spark and they're going to be creatures and blah, blah, blah. Nah, no. Bolas tries to steal all their spark and whether he succeeds or not is... In- end of narrative action so the story cards that they print in the sets that might be what happens in the end but the set is going to be about the battle that leads up to that so they're going to arrive on the plane as planeswalkers and your the set is going to be a planeswalkers matters set <laughs> remember i've seen at least one of the planeswalkers so <laughs> i know they have abilities just like you would imagine they might um plus some extra stuff so it, the, can I just say it would have been really funny if everything we knew about this was that it was Planeswalkers matter and then it turned out it was the characters mattered, but they had downgraded them all the creatures and we just got completely blown out of the water on everything well, because they weren't yeah, typed well, Planeswalker, which I don't think is the case, sure. but it would have been funny. Sure. And that's exactly what people have been floating as a theory who haven't heard us talking about this for a couple of weeks. Um so, and and there's a non-zero chance that there is some kind of twist like that. Like, I haven't seen the whole set. I've only seen a small handful of cards at this point. But, nah, from what I've seen, I don't think that's where they're I, headed. Is um, it possible that they print them as Planeswalkers in War of the Spark, but that, like, the, you know, the fifth five out of five storyline card is Nicol Bolas or, or whomever eating all of their sparks and then in future sets they show up as creatures so like they they're planeswalkers in this set but they are creatures in the future that's an option i think it's also possible that they just take a i think this could be a big step back from planeswalkers period for a while and the quest to regain the spark will be a thing down the road give them two or three years um and that they're gonna they're gonna focus on more classical fantasy tropes of like D&D style characters going on quests where they're vastly outnumbered and don't have those kind of abilities available to them and they're not switching planes and whatever. Um, hmm. And so if you believe the theory that's floating around that the next block in the fall is Lorwyn, that's a good plane that fits uh, because that plane was never really about planeswalkers at all. So Even though it introduced them. <laughs> yeah. But you're right, it wasn't. It wasn't at all. They were just cards there. Well, and and only five, right? That's the original release of Planeswalkers. So, yep. you know, that could be a retreat point for the surviving Planeswalkers from War of the Spark. It could They could not show up at all. I, I think that people are right to assume that after this, we take a breather from Planeswalkers. And that makes a lot of sense also mechanically for Standard. Because if you have a set like War of the Spark that has like three dozen Planeswalkers, that's more than you would normally would have printed in all of the sets for the year. So it makes a lot of sense that heading into the fall to keep standard relatively balanced, you might not print any. So that the total for the year is still about right for standard to function. So the standard from the spring through the fall is very weird and heavy on Planeswalkers. And then it starts to get back to normal as time goes on and things rotate out. Yeah. So that's 
where I, I would guess we are headed. Now, if you believe that Planeswalkers are going to be a major focus this spring, then the Judge Foil you want to be buying is Teferi's Protection, um, which has already spiked in North America. Um, uh, was never that cheap to begin with, as is the case with most of the cards we're going to talk about today from my list, um, but can still be had for the equivalent of $50 US in Europe um, from various sources. And the if your sell target in North America is, say, 90 then after fees, you could clear something like 60 70%. Sure. I, seems totally reasonable. I mean, you've already got that arbitrage available to begin with, and then you have a set that's really going to reward Teferi's protection. Uh, you know, probably a rush of people to build more Planeswalker EDH decks. Uh, it's, it's real powerful. It also resets all your Planeswalkers, which is nuts, because you can, like, minus them all to low loyalty counters and then Teferi's protection, or use them as normal and then play a doubling season and then protection. And now suddenly they all come back with double loyalty counters, right? Yep. So it does a lot of work with Planeswalkers for sure. And the thing is, it's already a high demand card even outside Planeswalker builds. It's just a good card in general for EDH that's seen relatively limited supply. Um, and only the Judge Foil, the Judge Foil is the only foil available. Um, so until they reprint it again, and they will, like the Judge Foils will be challenged by a foil reprinting at some point. But what we've seen is that Judge Foils are relatively resistant to foil reprints anyway. Um, so um, this is a good one. Let me, let me go through the rest of my list all at once, and then we'll we'll dip over to yours, just do it a little differently this week. Sure. Likewise, we have the new Judge Foil packets that have just hit the streets in the last little while um, that include Food Chain. Uh, food chain foils are relevant in both EDH where it's probably underplayed and are certainly relevant in legacy where it's been a deck for ages and has never had a foil printing. Um, you can pick up those judge foils over in Europe at $55. Currently here in North America, they're selling for a hundred plus. I would expect there to be downward price pressure on them in the short to midterm because more and more of them are going to show up in the market. And there will be a second release of them later this year. Um, because I think the judge foils get handed out basically twice before they're retired and two more cards come in to rotate those two out. Um, but that arbitrage gap is massive. Like if you can get 90 for a Teferi's Protection or a Food Chain and you can get 50 or 55 as your cost in and you can flip it inside three months or something before the price gets driven down or wait three months and then if, if you end up you know piling up your stuff in Europe and you only get it every once in a while... You might need to wait a few months, but it's still going to be an excellent return given how long you're going to have to wait. Sure. Uh, I mean, it's the only foil food chain, right? Because I don't think this was foiled in the other version, uh, which was Mercadian Mass. Mercadian Mass have foils? No, I don't remember. Oh, yeah, you're right. No, 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 I'm I'm wrong. You're right. It, it is a Mercadian Mass card, and therefore it must have a foil. It does, so yeah, it's not $200. The, it's not the only foil, but the foils are insanely expensive. Yeah, $200. Right. So, and this is good art. Um, on that food chain, and good luck finding a Mer Mercadian Mass foil food chain. Yeah, for less than $200. I'm sure you can find one if you're willing to pay a quarter of a thousand dollars. Right. So, given that those are my first two picks, and I bought some of both, what's the pick that I threw a thousand dollars at this afternoon and wished I had more on hand to throw? One $1,000 Gaia's Cradle. <laughs> nope. Uh, I don't... I don't want to sit here and guess at this. I assume it's a judge promo of some sort. I don't have the exemplar list up in front of me, so I don't know what the my targets are. But 
if there if there was a EDH judge foil that you thought was a surefire bet in this arbitrage circumstance, what would it be? I don't okay, judge foils. I don't know all the foils from that program. Wait, let me let me. All right, all right. I got the list up. Twenty. What year is it? Twenty nineteen. Uh, wait. So let's see. Food chain heuristic study. Commander sphere. No. Uh, it's probably rules lawyer, right? No, uh, penalty. <laughs> okay. So let's, let's zo- let's zero in on this. A blue card that everybody plays in EDH. Uh, the heuristic that, study. Yeah. So easiest thousand dollars I ever spent on magic this afternoon, picking them up at about the same price. Judge foils worked out to about 50 to 55 us, depending on who I was buying them from. Uh, pick up as many as I had money in my PayPal account to carry off and they're selling for about a hundred plus currently in the U S again, I think they will experience some downward pressure and land at like 90, 80, 70 in the near future as more show up. But is there any possibility that these don't accelerate past a hundred a year or two out? And just get really ridiculous. Uh, a year or two out, you're golden, right? Like, you'll see a second print. This was the seventh out of eighth in 2018. So, I believe that means it was only, uh, probably only sent out once. Because even if they, I don't I don't know the details of the Judge Foil program. But even if they do them, even if they do them quarterly, that means this would have been in the last quarter. Uh, well, it's, just, it's coming out right now. That This card is just been Okay, released. so the second printing is and pretty much guaranteed for somewhere in Later this year. Yeah, but, but in spite of that, no, I think you're still in great shape. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, honestly, if I had... I was seriously considering taking like 10,000 out of my stock portfolio out of an, un- an unprotected account that's not tax protected and just throwing it at this card because... I, I just don't see how you don't end up making thirty, forty, fifty dollars a copy without reading hard after. I actually don't think you could spend ten grand on this card. Well, it's been. I wasn't the only one buying them in Europe today. Ah. But again, the same thing's gonna ha- the same thing's gonna happen again later this year when more of them come out, and we're not done with them getting listed in Europe yet. Like there's still more judges that are gonna be post haven't even gotten around to posting them for sale yet. So. Um, you know, if you're picking them up at 50, 10 grand is not that many copies. Well, you're just talking about uh, of the available copies on MKM today, right now, you would spend about 1400 us. And that is yeah. every single copy. And that's without shipping, but keeping in mind, there was a lot more were there a few, like over the last 72 hours has been a pretty serious drain. So I don't, between these three. If you're too late for the Ristic studies, probably get the Teferi's protections. If you're too late for the Teferi's protections, definitely consider the food chains. I don't think food chains where I would want to be 10k deep because I just I don't think the demand profile is nearly as high, even if the card is exciting and foil for some people. Um, whereas Teferi's protection and Ristic study are top tier EDH staples that are just hard to go wrong with. Yeah, I, I would agree with that, that Food Chain is appealing, but it's probably the least of the three simply because the profile is slightly less so than Teferi's Protection and Rissic Study because those are so good. But I mean, Rissic Study is like the most or the third most played blue card in EDH, something like that, and Teferi's Protection is definitely up there. Would probably be more played if the only copies weren't, whatever, 30 or 40 bucks. Yeah. And that's the thing, like over in Europe, the regular copies are almost the same price as the Judge promos. So it's a total no-brainer. Hmm. All right. Some good stuff in there this week. I'm going to, I actually just drained my MKM account like 
within the last two weeks, I emptied it. Uh, and I had a lot. So good timing on this. Uh, I spent my last couple hundred dollars like yesterday. <laughs> so thank you. Um, in any case. You, you realize the entire time that you've been intelligently sending your money ahead of you to save a few percentage points over at MKM, I've just been paying through PayPal and sucking up the 5%. Well, I could now if I wanted to. Yeah. But uh, maybe I will. I don't know. Uh, all right. So, so my two picks this week, farther for those of you who haven't set up shop in a foreign country yet. Uh, my first pick of the week is Teferi, Temporal Archmage. So he protected. Now he's an Archmage. Um, we are looking at copies around $16 right now. Uh, I like this up to probably $30, maybe even $40. It is uh, only in Commander 2014. He was, they, he was part of that uh, set of Commander decks that had Planeswalkers as their generals. Um so that was it. That was the only copy we got. I, I don't know where you, you you would see this again in Commander product, but because like that's the only place it's been printed. But I don't know, you know, if it's not in command. It basically gives you Commander twenty nineteen this year. I'm like that's it. Uh, it's the only place I could put it. I mean, I mean, theoretically, they, you could put these in like Battle Bond or something like that or whatever that product does. But we know this year's is modern focused, so that's not Teferi. So I really don't know where they would put this card this year that isn't the Commander decks. And even that's definitely a stretch. But we're talking about Commander 2014, so he's going on five years old now. Um, like I said, they're about 16 bucks. He's very He has a very high coefficient with other Planeswalker cards, so like Deploy the Gatewatch and things of that nature. Uh, because his emblem is you can activate the loyalty abilities of planeswalkers anytime you could an instant. So it turns all your planeswalkers into instant effects, which pair that with something like Teferi's Protection, although isn't that one, doesn't Teferi's Protection return it on your turn, so it doesn't. Uh, uh, yeah, so Teferi's Protection isn't quite the wombo combo because they don't come back until your turn. But um, giving you the ability to use all your stuff at instant speed on your planeswalker is pretty nuts, especially if you have ways to instant speed blink them, because then you can keep using them again. You know, so there's some real power, powerful utility in there. So if we're going to see a surge in commander or planeswalker based EDH decks, um, Teferi is going to be front and center, or, or, I, or should I say, I expect him to be a part of most of them because what he gives you is so synergistic with all the other planeswalkers. He definitely strikes me as like a top five planeswalker to be indexed, and he's also blue, which is of course a you know blue white is the major color of planeswalker decks, like the core two colors. So uh, you know all this points to him being you know 30 40 bucks because he's just so good with other planeswalkers, and there are very few copies out there right now. I forgot this card existed. Um, I'm not running it in Attracts of Planeswalkers, but I should be. And when you play this into a doubling season, it's bonkers cakes. When you play this into a Chain Veil, you get to use his abilities twice a turn. So you play him for six, probably on turn four in EDH. Uh, Untop four permanents, including your Soul Ring and three lands, probably. Drop another Planeswalker. Then you tick him up and then uh, tick up and down the other Planeswalker. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yucky. You can also that's, uh that's a lot. 
that's a lot to go on in a single turn that early. Yeah, and if you emblem him and then you can activate Chain Valley each turn and then you're doing all your Planeswalkers twice a turn on every twice, player. Twice yeah, a turn on everybody else's turn. I mean, this is extremely Christmas <laughs> land, but like you get the impression, right? So Not really, though. That's not, not that Christmas land. Like, yeah, that, that's good card. It's a good pick. And you're right. In, unless he shows up in War of the Spark in this form. Which would be really weird because he's honestly like not that great like he wouldn't he would not i don't think he'd be playable in standard maybe maybe it's hard it's hard to say that just blank but it's also true that they've got a lot of planeswalkers to cover yeah i'm not sure teferi was in the 36 noted i haven't actually reviewed the list very very carefully and we've already got another teferi in standard so if you had to pick a right planeswalker to not make a new version of or bring an old version back this would probably be the one yeah, and he's got that line that he can be your commander, which is also a weird sentence to put on a standard legal card. Could happen. I mean, it could happen. I, but yeah, it is weird. They haven't done it yet. I think they probably will, um, because I don't see what the problem is. I think that you can put a, a line like that on it and have a you know player that's drafting or you know playing standard go, "Hey, what's commander again?" and then get pulled into a whole other angle of the hobby, which is you know leading. Oh, the card. sure, that's fine. I think it's only a matter of time before they do it, but we haven't seen it yet, right? The precedent yeah. hasn't been set. So until we do, you just kind of assume it's, you don't know when it's going to come. Um, the other thing is he was the front card of a piece of a product of the Commander 2014. So it's worth looking for those products as well. Uh, I actually have one. What is the name of this? It is. Uh, I, I happen to have one sitting on my shelf next to me. Peer Through Time. You want to look through peer through to prepare through time. Um, has Sapphire Medallion, Breaching Leviathan, Lorthos, Stitcher Girl, Well of Ideas. Uh, but yeah, there you go. So keep an eye out for that one too. I didn't actually go looking for them, but I know that that could be a cheap source of these as well, possibly. Uh, my other card is uh, Arena Rector. Out of Battle Bond. So longtime players will know the name Academy Rector. This was the form on a white creature that when you died, you got to tutor an enchantment and put it in the play. So you'd go get omniscience and then end the game. Arena Rector is the same concept. Form on a white guy, white woman. When she dies, you go get a planeswalker. So probably a little less powerful than getting omniscience, but still quite good. Um, a mythic in battle bond. They're about nine bucks right now. You might be able to find them cheaper if you wait for five percent you know, 5% off sales, uh, but roughly that price range. Uh, I'm going to warn you, there's a good chunk of stock on these. Uh, Arena Rector is not sh- in short supply. Uh, there are, let me double check here, 200 and, wait, 142 vendors on uh, TCG right now with copies. And the very first one on the page has 44. And then a little further down, somebody has 35. Uh, and I haven't scrolled through all of them, but there's there's some supply out there. No doubt about it. But it is from Battle Bond, which means there isn't that much in whole. And it does do really good things with Planeswalkers, like tutor for any Planeswalker and put it on the battlefield. Sure, I'll go get the new Ugin or Nicol Bolas or Karn or whatever they print in War of the Spark that's 10 mon and does something really dumb when it comes into play. Uh, there's just... I mean, I, I would be recommending you foils here, but they're like seven, $60. So, like, 
kind of ship sailed on that one a while ago. Uh, but I got to tell you, if there's a bunch of people interested in Planeswalker decks, supply on this is going to start to move and the prices will go up. And that guy with 44 copies, if he starts, if he sells four of them in a day, he's probably not leaving the other 40 at 10 bucks. He's probably going to start moving that up. So you don't have to sell out the inventory to move the price closer to $20 or whatever. You just have to start moving inventory, period. So and this is- I would say just high, much higher inventory than I typically talk about, but like it's just... It's in a really good set, and it's going to be really well positioned if we get a bunch of Planeswalkers, especially one or two really expensive good ones. It's only going to take a 1,000 players in North America to decide that they want to fool around with Planeswalkers and EDH based on all the goodies they're getting in War of the Spark yeah. to significantly change the price of this card and turn it into a $20 card. First of all, it's from an ancillary product, a summer set. It's a mythic. Um, so they're only going to sit around for so long. It's also not going to be the kind of thing they're going to reprint super soon because it just got printed within the last 365. Um, and I actually think foils are a reasonable target. I think the upside on the non-foils is higher, so I think you're right to highlight those first. But you can get foils as cheap as 50 bucks, um, And it's a foil mythic from, a, again, summer ancillary set. So they could easily end up $100 18 months out if War of the Spark really reinvigorates Planeswalker play for EDH. Yeah, I'm not even going to tell you that that's not the way to go. It just wasn't the one that I was chasing down. But I mean, $80 foils doesn't seem out of the question on this. Um, You know, if we really do get that sort of uh, attention on the card or on the Planeswalkers. Yeah, and I think that the other thing to pay attention to is, of course, buy lists. So if we're looking, for instance, at Card Kingdom, they're currently offering 39 in, in trade on the foils. So not very risky to go the foil route. And they're offering nine in credit um, on the non-foils. So mm. nine nearly risk-free. Yeah, it's basically what you're going to pay to get in. Close to so, it. Zero, virtually risk-free. Um, and as long as you make a note to yourself in what I hope you're... You know, in the spreadsheet, I hope that you are using to track your specs, um, you know, the, of where your exit is. You set your timeline. I want to try to get out of these in three months, six months, whatever. And if you don't, check back in on the buy list and go ahead and listen there. I mean, th- this is the kind of play where I don't want to buy 200 copies of this and then sell them one by one. I want to sell, buy 200 copies of this and then ship them to CK like 40 at a time every six months for a couple of years. Yeah. Yep. And then ratchet that up into something crazy. Right. Yep. That's basically the same page I would be on is either either a small handful or enough that you know you're going to buy list them. But either way, uh, you have a a strategy. Uh, Arena Rector is the kind of card that could get you some power. Yeah, if you went real deep, for sure. You know, and then you slowly, yeah, like you said, trade in 40 every three months to one vendor and build up a, a pile of store credit. Mm-hmm. Or, or if you're the kind of player that goes to a lot of big tournaments, you know, you're going to get chances to buy a list on the floor. Yeah. Um, to buy lists that aren't necessarily published online. And you can really spread it out. Yeah. It's an option, too. All right. I really like that one, too. I, I have a bonus pick um, just because I feel guilty for pushing people at Europe all over again. <laughs> um, this is a pick from way back. I called this like a year ago, at least. I was going to um, say, I know I we've talked like about it a couple times this before. Yeah, and so another case where I was probably a year early, but more right today than I was then. Um, when I first called Spire of Industry Foils, I was thinking of uh, Affinity decks running them. Um, then KCI was running them, and now potentially the uh, Affinity decks are back on on uh, the Warpath. There's also 
um, the what's it called? Uh, lantern. The Sam Black. No, the, yeah, the the lanternless were decks run it as a four of. Um, so put aside semblance anvil, the word X already run it as a four. So if it's, if that version's running around and you've got affinity and you've got, um, potentially semblance anvil, semblance anvil decks, then you've got a whole lot of demand for a out of print $8 foil rare whose inventory is not particularly deep. And I know I was picking these up like a year ago for like $10. I'm seriously considering swiping a whole bunch more off under $10, dollar cost average a little lower. And then I think it's got the same kind of game plan down the road as like Westville Abbey. It's going to be a $20 foil before it ever sees a reprint. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm on board. I, I feel like I liked it when you talked about it in the past and I still like it. It hasn't seen quite enough movement at this point but you know the the grass is only getting greener right like it was a good pick then it's a better pick now there's still decks playing it and really it's we've seen a proof of an evolution here that even though the deck that has been playing it has changed more than once it's still a card that artifact heavy decks go back to like it was affinity and then it was uh K, you know kci for a while now it's it's lanternless but like there's always somebody around who's going to want that type of effect uh, which is good because it means it's not really meta dependent in the way that uh, Scab Clan Berserker is, you know. Sure. And so checking over on the buy list side of things, Card Kingdom, again, is offering $9.10 for the foils. <laughs> you can arbitrage the 6 and $7 copies from TCG Player over to Card Kingdom and get up a couple of dollars without doing anything. Hmm. Is a... Uh... There is uh, an opportunity for somebody with uh, a lot of time on their hands and who probably doesn't have a job <laughs> could make some money. Card Kingdom's only taking four copies mm-hmm. at the moment. So it's not like you can get, you can exit the, well, for instance, the stumbling block, block on TCG player, as per usual, is Channel Fireball with their 41 copies at $8. <laughs> but <laughs> you don't really have to dare people these days to spend 320 um, and clear that out. I don't actually think that those kind of roadblocks are all that effective once you've got a few hundred focused minds working on the project. I really want to be able to search Channel Fireball, and I haven't actually looked if I can do it, but I should look later. Search Channel Fireball for cards that are basic, probably just more than $7 that they have more than 30 of. Uh, and see what they've got floating around over there. Because I still have that like 1200 bucks that I haven't spent that I really need to. And I was thinking about doing it on the worst before you guys bought all the damn things out. Uh, and then just kind of see what they've got floating around that might be a deep stock of a card that is time to go. Hmm. Yeah. To think about that. So tell everybody, tell everybody about that big Star City Games card you executed on this week. Oh, yeah. Well, that was something you and I were chatting about. And I, this isn't a surprise to anybody, but Deep Glow Skate, I picked up. I don't know. The, I think I didn't I write about it too. I think I wrote about it and talked about it on Star City and posted the article and then kind of thought about it. And then I'm like, ah, all right, I'll, I'll do it. I'm going to buy it because I keep writing about the damn things, and not buying them. And then they spike. So I went and bought, I think it was 41 copies of Deep Glow Skate on Star City this week. Um, because, I mean, it doubles the per- counters on every permanent you control or as many as you want. I mean, you really, it is doubling season after the fact, which is almost better than doubling season. Because it means you don't have to wait until you have doubling season in play. 
you can find it and then get paid. And because it's a creature, you can bounce the damn thing. So you can like play it, double all your stuff and then venture it to double all your stuff again. Uh, it's pretty nutty. And then, and then you can write replicate it and uh, make nine emblems or something. I don't know. So yeah, I picked up a bunch of copies. I think I paid seven for them. Uh, TCG. I didn't actually check TCG after the fact. We had a kind of a, had roughly like 40 to 50 copies there as well, probably in the ballpark now unless somebody went and bought all of them but i really like that if we're getting a lot of planeswalkers i'm everything lately right between you and i for the last three weeks has been planeswalker focused planeswalkers yeah except for rhystic studies which is just cards default obvious (laughs) magic focused well all right Let's move on. Segment three, our minigame we can review. Uh, not a lot this past weekend because the Mythic Championship Cleveland is this coming weekend. Uh, which, I will be which, atten- which I will be attending. For, you'll be at. For, I think and, it's my first ever pro tour. Wow. Congratulations yeah. on going to the my building. Dad's gonna play, my dad's going to play in the GP. I'm going to bring my Wilderness Reclamation deck and tear up the side tournaments for Modern. <laughs> yeah, my buddies are going to be there. I'm not making the hike out, but uh, yeah, the first one, there is coverage. It was announced. Kind yep. of odd with good, talk good, about it, but they did. Good coverage team. It. Um, so there was nothing this past weekend. We did get an uh, MTGO mod event, uh, kind of a, a funky one. We had four dredge decks in the top eight. There was one by a Death Shadow. There was a Pyro Prison deck in seventh place. Two rock decks in a 10 and 11, uh, two hardened modular decks in 15th and 16th, uh, lanternless in 8th. So kind of a, a funky distribution here. The one that probably caught your attention was Pyro Prison. That runs uh, four Ramunap Ruins, which is the one where you can sack deserts to do two lands, some Gemstone Caverns, which is the luck-based land. Uh, also has some, a couple Eidolon of the Great Rebels, uh, four Rabble Masters, uh, Legion War Boss, which is like the other Rabble Master, uh, four Simeon Spirit Guides. So between the Spirit Guides and the Gemstone Caverns, we've got a lot of ways to make two mana on turn one because they're playing four Chalice of the Void, as well as four Ensnaring Bridge, which hurts less when you're playing Gemstone Caverns and Simeon Spirit Guides. And then top it off with four Chandra Torch of Defiance. That's the good four mana one from Aether Revolt and for Blood Moon to lock your opponents out even more so. And then a smattering of a couple instances of sorcery. So kind of like a mid-range red prison deck that is really looking to power out Chalice of the Void or Blood Moon on turn one and two to uh, hammer it into their opponent. Getting to turn one Gemstone Cavern, Simeon Spirit Guide, Blood Moon is... That's some good stuff. And you'll notice that like the Gowan Rebel Master and the Legion War Boss are one card armies because um, they're not going to have a lot of card equity to work with after the fact. So uh, I don't know if this card, this deck is good, but it's fun to see it show up. Um, seems like it could be very annoying for Phoenix because of the Chalice of the Voids. That might be why we're seeing this here um, all of a sudden. Maybe it's kind of a meta deck. I'm not sure, but interesting. And worth pointing out that this thing runs four Ramanap Ruins and the foils for that. Um, are probably too cheap if this deck keeps posting up. We've seen a bunch of different versions of Red Prison. They top eight here and there. Um, I think that people discount this deck probably too easily because I think the players that know the archetype really well um, are able to tune it uh, effectively for a variety of different metas. 
So it's probably better on any given weekend than most people give it credit for. And it's also interesting, as you mentioned, that we've seen versions in the past that have run one or two Chandra Torch of Defiance. This is running the full four. Um, I have a foil Russian uh, sitting around that would love for this to become the de facto standard. <laughs> I don't doubt it. That's a, it's an odd deck. And, you know, I, I have to imagine a lot of it is people just discount mono red decks that aren't burn. Like if you see a red heavy deck and it's not running, f- you know, four lightning bolt and four, uh, I guess it's not chain lightning, but whatever else, Eidolons, uh, you're like, eh, people love to try and make scred work or whatever. And it never really seems good enough, but we do see modern red prison pop up. So this could be a case of the deck is good enough. It's just no one's putting in the reps to grind out the right list and then making it a known thing. It's cool that they're running three Anger of the Gods in the sideboard, which I have to presume is uh, anti-Dredge, anti-Phoenix uh, tech, since it exiles the creatures when they go to the graveyard. Yeah, it's anti-creatures, really. Anti-creature tech. Anger's well, real good. An- an- anti-recursive creatures. Like, sure. You can't get your Phoenixes back from exile. Yep. Um, also worth pointing out that the, that eighth place deck is Lanternless, which I referenced earlier, and which runs the four aforementioned copies of Spire of Industry. Um, also running uh, four botanical sam- sanctum in that deck. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are foils people might, might want to take a look at soon, probably show up on our list sooner or later. And the four Teleria Wests that uh, got canceled from my post-buy list order. And four were of invention. <laughs> yep, which we called the other day. Um, All right, so I also want to take a look, though. Look at this Death Shadow deck. You probably breezed by it too quickly. This I is very this definitely thing. did. Four Death Shadow, four Monastery Swift Spear, four Street Wraith, right? Okay, normal. Wait, it's not the Grixis version. It's the Jun version for Tarmogoyf. But wait, for Wild Nettle? Oh, this is... Sorry, Wild... That's going to be my card of the week that people catch me on the pronunciation. Wild Nacattle. <laughs> Sorry. Wasn't this banned? I thought this was banned. Yeah, they brought it back. And it didn't do anything. Is that what happened? Now. They banned it and then they unbanned it? Yep. Because hmm. when Modern started, started, it was too effective. But now... Not so, except look at look at this. You got it. You got a three three that apparently they want to run. They they're really there's a bunch of other cool tech here, like monastery swift spear with four Mishra's bobble. You can go like bobble mute, double mutagenic growth and like slam them for ten or something. Yeah, that's yeah. That I mean the, the Mishra's bobble is there to make your deck fifty six cards basically, and then you also get the added bonus of it making swift spears and tarmogoyfs better. Uh, yep, it, it is funky. The uh, they've got the become immense too, and the four team or battle rage kind of throwing it back a little bit. This is a deck looking to just crush people um, because your tarmogoyfs and your swift spears also work very well with the immense battle rage plan of just like eighteen yeah. somebody. Yeah. So we haven't really seen like this version of Death Shadow for a while. It's been very Grixis focused lately. Um, and this, again, this isn't, there's no traverse to Ulvenwald here, which my spec box is not too happy about. Um, but I'm certainly happy to see Death Shadow continue to do well because I've got a big pile of, of the foils sitting on my desk ready to get sent in somewhere. I wonder if it has to do with uh, it being better against Phoenix somehow. Everything seems to be Phoenix focused lately. Um, although that deck, I mean, I'm looking at this deck. Let's see, they've got Skewer the Critics and Lightning Bolt, but neither of those can kill Tarmogoyf, and they're probably not killing uh, Monastery Swift Spear if you play your cards right. 
Uh, Lava Spike goes to the face. Gut Shot's only one damage. So uh, Bethlehem Reveler doesn't do it. Yeah, so there's actually not a lot of tools in Phoenix to stop uh, like a Become Immense type creature. Um, your Tarmogoyster are basically invincible from the get-go and your Monastery Suspirus can get there really fast. So maybe that's why it's just the, the Grixis decks were a little too slow, whereas this version just plows right through your Phoenix's, Phoenix opponent's face. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see how this how this uh, you know fills in the meta or doesn't. Um, whether this tech gets picked up. Um, all right, so final segment of the week, we want to talk about a couple of changes to the business of Magic Gathering um, that were announced. The first of which uh, was MSRP getting exiled by Wizards of the Coast. Um, they announced this week that they will no longer be announcing the MSRP for Wizards products which means that uh, things like Ultimate Masters will no longer have a street price uh, announced when the product is announced. It will be left to the market to determine the price based on the kind of margin they want to get and what they paid. Well, okay, so um, so hold on. I just want to focus because you're saying they're not announcing the MSRP, but it was my understanding that there is no MSRP, right? Like there, right. there's a price well, that the distributor pays to get it from Wizards, but that that has never been MSRP. Uh, and so it's not that it's hidden information essentially it's it does not exist they are no longer suggesting prices right now I would argue that that number still totally exists in their analytics because you don't do financial modeling for products without knowing what you expect people to sell it for yeah but they're not going to announce that in a way that can be easily referenced by content creators, by players, by retailers. Now, most retailers can figure this out on their own anyway, because it, what really matters is what the cost of the product is. And there was a recent cost increase that was, um, I think, last fall through the distributors, which was passed on to um, retailers, which stings. And the question is, is there going to be another one of those this year that leads to pack prices finally being nudged up? One of the interesting things about Magic Economics is despite the fact that we complain about the game, the cost per booster pack has actually been lagging way behind um, inflation for years and years and years. Like I, I was buying 3 and $4 booster packs in the late 90s, and today we're still basically buying 3 to $4 booster packs. And arguably, the advent of the internet has made getting access to even cheaper booster packs that much easier. I mean, you can get $80 and $90 booster boxes from various online vendors at the right time and place for standard sets anyway. Yeah, like and that can drive your boost that can drive your boost your average booster cost down under three dollars. So people had a lot of opinions they were spouting off in, on social media about what this was going to mean. My only you know, I don't think it means a lot other than it opens the door for pricing to be a little more wild west, right? The um the possibility of a really large volume operator um, gaining being able to you know decide to take a much lower margin in exchange for gobbling up some market share is a thing that could be attempted but again that doesn't come from the msrp it comes from the root cost from the distributors and the kind of margins that the volume operators are able to achieve based on their marketing reach so there's a lot of other pieces to the puzzle it it's it's a real soft impact, right? Like 
everyone knows how much these products are generally supposed to cost anyways. You know, booster boxes aren't going to be a different price overnight just because there's no MSRP tied to them. Same with booster packs that, you know, the battle bonds and products of that nature aren't suddenly going to change dramatically in price because there's no MSRP tied to them. Um, because as long as the distributor cost is relatively similar, that, that should in effect be close to what you'd pay anyways. So it's not going to change anything right away, but this definitely is sort of like a, it's a soft impact, but it's definitely a push uh, kind of across the board. It will apply pressure. It's just not immediate and obvious. Um, And I know that it seemed like the general takeaway from a lot of people on the store side of things was that it's not great for them. Uh, They're not saying like, this is terrible for me right now, but they don't love the change. Yeah. Um, now, one of the, uh, I think it's a PhD student that was talking to me on Twitter was arguing that what really matters here is whether Wizards is also going to implement what's called map pricing, which is uh, uh, minimum advertised price, um, which if mm. you have been to business school, you may be familiar with, um, or if you work in the retailing or um, product industry. Um, the minimum advertised price is the kind of thing a company will roll out if, for instance, they want to sell $300 headphones, but the wholesale price is only 100 and the margin's really fat, and they don't want people to dry erode the perceived brand value or product value down by undercutting each other constantly. And so that what they will say to their vendors is, you, have, you cannot advertise a price below, say, $200 um, or $250 on a $300 product. Um, and it ends up impacting, uh, brick and mortar vendors more than it does online vendors because of the fact that a brick and mortar might rely on a flyer or a newspaper ad or something where they're not allowed to post this low price. Um, but an online vendor can kind of hide it behind a login in a cart, like a log in to, to see pricing. You might see at various vendors online. And that often means that there's a map price in play. Because um, the rules that are given to the vendors are not based on what they're allowed to sell the product for, only what they're allowed to advertise their sale price at. So you can sell the price for a dollar, the, the product for a dollar if you want. You just can't make you can't make any noise about it. Yeah, this is so. If this sounds like something you might have seen before, Apple does this a lot. Um, right. That's why it's so hard to find cheap prices on Apple because they're they're pretty strict about what they let vendors get away with. Now, see, I see map pricing is probably a benefit for stores because especially so there's a minimum advertised price, which is you can't say that you're selling our booster boxes for less than $100. So then Star City says, okay, well, we will say, we will not print the price but we will, if you sign into our website, then we will show you the true price, which is, let's say, 85 bucks, 90 bucks. I don't know enough here, but I have to hazard a guess that they can probably say you, you have to stick to the minimum advertised price. You aren't allowed to sell it for cheaper for, you know, however, six weeks or two months or whatever um, to kind of level the playing field. Which would actually be a huge boon for stores, right? Like, because if you're a local mom and pop store, you're getting grilled by Amazon and eBay sales and that type of thing that really kind of, you know, that force your prices down or people expect you to have lower prices because why would I buy it free from you for 95 when I can go to Star City and get it for 89? You know, I can wait a couple of days and save six bucks. But 
if they have to play by this, if Star Citizen has to play by the same rules you do, and Amazon has to play by the same rules you do, now you can sell it. You, your customers will just buy it from you because they might as well because they're not saving any money and they'd re- mostly rather support you than Star City or Amazon. Uh, but that's that's a that's a second leap, right? Like we're not there. They didn't announce it. We don't know if that's coming. We haven't heard that from any vendors. And it does seem odd that they wouldn't talk about that they wouldn't release this information in concert. If they're rolling back MSRPs and not using that anymore, and they were planning on using Map and similar programs, I would expect that to happen simultaneously. Maybe not. I'm not a business major, so there could be reasons for them to leave a gap between those policies. But that's kind of what I would expect. Yeah. So the other thing is that in the Wizards announcement, they made reference to Magic being such a global brand and how this assisted with um, their efforts to market products overseas. Buried it in the subtext there is that there's a bunch of regulatory issues overseas related to things, uh, the topic of MSRP, which is part of probably what they're addressing here. Um, but ultimately, what you know on the topic of MAP, I don't think that's where they're headed. So it's, it's worth asking the question, is MAP forthcoming? But I think the answer will be no. Um, I don't think Wizards is interested in regulating lowest cost. In fact, I think that they view people accepting lower margins as a way to get more product in the hands of players faster. And they also think that players constantly complain about price and that the you, the younger segment of the magic playing market, like say 16 to 24 is especially price sensitive because this generation is getting wrecked <laughs> um, in terms of the, um, especially in America, in the U S but also in Canada and other places. Um, the greater economic forces. Yeah. By the greater economic forces. And so, you know, bringing if wizards gets to charge the same for a booster box or even a little more at the wholesale level and but the players end up getting the boxes for less that's a win-win for them they're totally fine with that um driving increasing sales um while not while improving their own profit is what everything we've seen them doing lately has been about so well i i I don't see how how does this allow a local store or Amazon to sell them for less than they were yesterday. It doesn't. Because they, they they weren't tied to MSRP anyways. Everyone sells product for under MSRP as it is. So it's not like and this uh, unleashes them to sell below price that they weren't before. So I don't know why this would suddenly drive the prices down on product. It won't. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that we're, because when they start talking about getting rid of MSRP, often what comes next is MAP. And MAP would have an effect on setting a floor over prices. But I don't think we're going to get MAP yeah. because I don't think that aligns with their actual objectives. Um, yeah. And that's, you know, that's the logic stream I'm, I'm on. So I think that instead we will see, as I said, the Wild West. You're going to see um, as prices continue to favor or sorry, as the swallowing of market share continues to favor the volume operator like if we remember what we saw happen with sports and more selling ultimate masters boxes um selling a tremendous amount of product in a very short period of time mass drop moves a lot of product for wizards these days you have um several other major vendors on ebay that can move thousands of boxes of something if if they're given the inventory um and they accept a smaller margin i mean even the people like the, the smaller store that i bought ultimate masters from at like 240 a box or whatever uh 225 a box um you know i got a case for 900 
Um, they did that because magic's not their forte. Like that's not their focus. And they were just operating based on the margin they wanted to get to flip it fast based on what the distributor charged them. And volume plays online, if they don't face map, are going to continue to be a thing that erodes profit from other parts of the distribution funnel. Yeah, well, and I agree with that, that we're shifting heart, you know, it seems like there are, we haven't really seen any decisions that encourage that drive traffic back into the local store. Most of it seems to drive traffic to Amazon and, and major vendors, you know, sports and more mass drop, whatever. Uh, this one is not as quite as clear cut, but I don't see it benefiting the local stores without something like map, which like, you know, we're kind of both on the same page is probably not in the pipe. Um, so I don't know. It, it's, it's, ultimately I don't feel like we have a, a fantastic perspective on why they're doing this. Like you said, it could actually be, it's all has to do with some regulatory nonsense in foreign countries and we're all trying to divine the tea leaves and it's actually way more simple than we kind of are giving it credit for. Uh, and they're planning on it, not having a meaningful impact in the States. I'm not sure. I know that I will be curious to hear what local stores have to say over the next couple months um, and how it's impacting their bottom line and, and, their market well i mean i yeah i agree with that there's there is however there are some elements that are kind of out on the table um that don't require any tea leaves or tinfoil hats i mean we know that there was an uproar about the msrp of ultimate masters when it was announced um and that would be it would have been a non-issue if that was not part of the announcement yeah I guess and that's true. And, and the, but like they're still going to announce it. They're going to announce a you know UMA too, and they won't announce an MSRP. I guess people won't if they don't write two hundred and sixty dollars on it or whatever or three hundred and twenty. People can't yell about it, but every damn person looking at it should know it's still going to cost three hundred dollars. So like, so is you can't see me, but I'm gesturing and making a face. It's going to get interesting in a hurry though, because at the end of this month, not too long from now, it's the 19th of February today. We're within 10 days or so, we're going to get the announcement about the modern focus product that we're expecting to come out in late spring, early summer. Um, and if that doesn't have an MSRP, then the discussion gets very interesting about what the price is going to be. Because, um, if you don't know the MSRP upfront, then you can't estimate whether you're talking about $4 packs or $6 packs or $10 packs. And that matters because if it's a partial reprint set, you'd kind of like to know that because it would it would help determine how quickly you would want to exit anything you were holding that might be reprinted. A set, I guess a set that has a higher cost per pack that you can't divine um, the price of up at the announcement period becomes a very interesting question and people are going to be rooting around with their distributor contract contacts trying to get that information as quickly as possible because you're going to want to know let me let me frame this a different way let's say they announce that there is a 24 pack modern focused set that will include both new cards and reprints mm -hmm. the question is is that going to be a hundred dollar booster box a hundred and fifty dollar booster box or two hundred dollar booster box and you won't know. Well, I guess, I mean, I guess, you know, if they announce it tomorrow, they said modern, exactly the product you just described with no price and you have nothing to go on but the announcement, you're probably expecting it between 220 and 320, right? Which is modern masters to UMA, essentially. Is that what the the MSRP was on Ultimate Masters? Was it like 320? Is that accurate? No, I think it was, two, I think it was, I think it was 250, wasn't it? 250? Was it only that? Because I know modern masters, the MSRP is like 230. 
Oh no, no, I'm wrong. Was it, it 220? I'm wrong. I've got that completely wrong. I think you're I think it was 350. 349.99. Okay. So we're we're assuming it was in that it's in that $100 range. Now, to be fair, that's a pretty large range, but at least we know we're not yeah, we we given precedent, we aren't expecting a non-standard booster box to cost $100 if it's anything like that, right? Um Battle Bond and stuff like that, we're going to know is about 100 bucks. Any like these special sets we know are going to be 200 and up. Uh, now, but there's still a range there. So we're all just going to kind of be in the dark, but only until the distributors tell the vendors how much the product costs. Yep. Because as soon as that information is available, you're going to see Star City and Channel Fireball and ABU and Sports and More and Mass Drop are all going to be selling the product for like within 15 bucks yeah. of each other. And is it going to be 220 or is it going to be 340? And that's how you'll know what the price is supposed to be. So even though it's not written in it, you will find out as soon as people, as soon as the stores know what they're paying for it. Because that information still exists. We just, it's not, they're not writing it on the webpage. But I mean, I guess it's fair that you're, we're going to, you and I are going to look at that, that posting. And we're going to be like, I don't know. I, I don't know. Is this a $200 one or a $350 one? I don't know yet. Um, MSRP on Ultimate Masters correction three thirty five seventy six of all things. Yeah. Okay. I said three thirty. I think so. It's pretty close. Um, was was Modern Masters two twenty? Am I right about that? Well, the first one was no. There's seven. The first one was pack, seven bucks right? a pack by twenty four, and then the next one was ten. So it was like two forty. Yeah. So yeah. Okay. So it was one seventy for the first one, and then two forty for the second except one. The, so. Except the first one sold at fifteen a pack. Pretty much everywhere. Yeah. Yes, it was way above MSRP, whereas Modern Masters 2 and 3 sold you know, more accurately. Right. All right. So final topic of the evening. And uh, we also wanted to just briefly touch on the announcement they made about the pre-release experiment that they're running in Europe. And in fact, they're not just running it in Europe. It's going to be Europe, Russia, South Africa, and the Middle East for the War of the Spark uh, pre-release weekend. Um, War of the Spark product will be sellable. Saleable. Um, as of the Saturday morning. So instead of the classic pre-release model where pre-releases take place and a week later the product goes on sale, they're now going to experiment in a specific geo region with putting all of the product on sale during the pre-release weekend. My interpretation of this is that they are experimenting with the concept of um, combining release weekend and pre-release weekend. Um, so they only have to support one event and possibly attempting to capitalize on um, hype earlier in the cycle. It's always been a little weird to me that they wait to sell the product so long yeah. because people are so yep. hyped up on pre-release weekend. That's when they want to buy a box. And if you wait a week and they get to like read articles about it and stuff, they may form a different opinion. And so I, it seems like the kind of thing you would experiment with if you were both looking to cut costs on your organized play program, because this, if you only have, one of pre-release and release weekend, then you only have to send out one set of promos and all the other support that they do for the stores. Um, and you get to sell, everybody gets to sell earlier. So we'll be very curious to see how this plays out and whether it becomes the norm six months later everywhere else. It has always struck me odd that they separate it. Um, and especially running like events on pre-release weekend and release weekend. It, I, it, it felt like it could have made more sense back early, 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 where especially, especially if you rewind, rewind real far back where pre-releases were not local, pre-releases were like regional. So I know people here in Buffalo remember when they were children, they would go to Syracuse two hours away to play in a pre-release. 
Um, and that was a big deal, right? Like you didn't have them all down the street. And then release weekend, it was everywhere. So it really was a moment. You got to just get a taste of it before it was available. And then you had to wait till next weekend, like, you know, at FNM the next week before you could buy it. But once they changed pre-releases to be local, now it's like, okay, this is cool. But like really the set kind of comes out on this day and most local stores would sell you the product on Wednesday. So it was the pre-release was Saturday and Sunday. And then on Wednesday is when most stores would let you start picking up the product because I believe that's when the websites were allowed to start shipping it, I think. Like that was their contract. So like the stores felt like they could do it on Wednesday and not worry about it. Although in my experience, they were ripping the plastic off before they let you out of the store. Um, So like the gap, like it really blurred the line. There was no longer that hard line between you get to touch the cards at pre-release, no more for five, for six days, and then you can have it. That's shortened. It's so weird now. So I'm not surprised that they would kind of chuck the release system and just go, or, you know, the pre-release release and just go to one. But it does seem bad for local stores again, because even if you're driving more raw sales of the product on pre-release weekend, because now people are excited for the product right then and there and they buy it. I do wonder, I mean, how many box sales do you really lose between pre-release and release? Like it's got to be a relatively small percentage, especially when you consider that release weekend still drives quite quite a bit of traffic and drives people into seats for the release events, which is where a lot of the product, the profit margin comes from, I think is running the events. Uh, so, you know, if you're, if you're essentially removing half of those release events per year, because, you know, going from one, two to one, uh, I don't I don't think that's good for stores. And we talked before that the pre-releases are a huge revenue stream for local stores. I mean, like it covers their rent from anywhere from one to six months. Like some stores, like their rent for the entire year is paid on just pre-releases. So removing additional events of that nature is definitely not good for them. It's a rough couple months to be a local store selling magic cards, honestly. It's kind of weird, right? Because they get like Ultimate Masters was really good for them and Magic is doing well overall. But as we talked about last week, this is this has been a series of decisions that force them to be leaner and meaner and, you know, off, either offload profit potential from LGSs to Wizards or offload profit potential to other kinds of, uh, of uh, sellers who are not community creators and supporters in the way that LGSs have been for a solid quarter century. Which so this and this all kind of ties into the way they're building magic these days, right? Because we know that for a while they tried to make magic essentially what Randy Bueller wanted, and then they stopped, right? Like they kicked Randy Bueller and all those guys out and said, We don't want Urza's magic, we want battleship magic. Uh, and they kind of changed the pace and there's been the focus on EDH, blah, blah, blah. Now we're seeing the focus, you know, we started seeing these modal cards that just seemed kind of out of place. And that was because of the best of one stuff on arena. And they want to make that an avenue kind of moving everything more towards like casual, goofier arena. Like, right, we're moving away from the best of three grindy competitive world and into a much more friendly world. And it's step by step by step. We're making that transition. But with that, we're also seeing what appear to be a reduction in support for local stores because maybe they kind of want to axe FNM or like they want to tone down the, the culture of going to your local stores and competing in events, 
right? Like that is something that I did a lot when I was playing Magic regularly. I would go to FNMs. I would go to Saturday modern events. I would go to, you know, the local PPTQs, like, uh, you know, all that good stuff. We were, we were at our local source playing competitive events for all of that. And the changes in, in the way there have been printing Magic cards and marketing Magic and the cards that they've been making in Magic paired with the changes to how they're supporting stores seems to be essentially saying we don't really want to support a market where players show up with 75 card decks and play competitive paper magic. Uh, kind of seems hand in hand that that's what they're doing. Yeah. I suspect this won't be the last interesting announcement uh, this year. Certainly not, maybe not even this quarter. <laughs> so um, lots of stuff going on. And uh, I guess we'll call that a wrap. I, I will say on one last note, I, it all makes me kind of wonder as a greater picture, is this a, ch- a case of Wizards having a much higher vantage point on all of this than we do and sort of just trying to reposition magic for what they think is going to be healthier and stronger and is more profitable long term? And we're just still kind of in the middle of it so we can't see the changes as well? Or is this just short-sighted capitalism where they're trying to drag as much money out of this every quarter to appease their investors and we're going to get six years down the road and find that the the product is is damaged heavily because that you know they weren't interested in preserving it i don't know i don't have that information and uh it's gonna be a while before we really figure it out but uh i hope that there is greater perspective on these changes uh at the ceo level than I guess it appears to be at the moment. One of the, one of the things worth keeping in mind is that we have seen um, a tremendous willingness to backpedal from Wizards. They've made lots of bad decisions that have been walked back, things like going to an 18-month standard from a 24-month and reversing that and so forth. So true. If, if they... My interpretation remains the same, that all the changes are about cutting costs, boosting profit, um by charging more, putting out more products, increasing the ARPU, um, decreasing the amount they spend um, on marketing, or more accurately reorganizing their marketing spend so that they get more out of it because they believe that content creators can do a lot of the work for them for less. Um, like that they, they can get more out of a dollar spent on YouTube than they can get out of a dollar spent on covering ma- magic at the GP level. And that if some of those things end up being, uh, those decisions end up being uh, associated with uh, injured profit or revenue, then you'll see them reverse course. If they do their job and the game stays healthy and both of those things are you know, on the upswing, then they'll be very unlikely to reverse course. So um, I don't think that social media noise is going to be enough to move the needle on some of these issues, because as you said, they are coming from a, you know, a higher level of, of planning and analytics. Yeah, I don't know for sure. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not trying to, you know, claim the sky is falling and that magic is dying or anything. I don't think that's the case at all. It's extremely successful right now. I mean, you and I are buying and selling at a record pace because there's so much health in the game, but, uh, I guess I'm just, I'm wondering if we are building towards a bigger and newer future for magic, or if this is something of a slow death rattle, but I don't know. I know it's been an hour and 40 minutes. So we, and you, we can wrap this up. Uh, James, where can our listeners find you? 
one small point before that. Several, several, <laughs> okay. several episodes. Several episodes. Can't let it go. No, no, this is different. <laughs> several episodes back, uh, I called Elspeth Knight Errant, uh, Bach, uh, masterpiece um, from Mythic Edition One at forty bucks. I think I just sold one for nearly ninety. Um, while we were sitting oh. here. So All right. that one's turning out well, and I hope it's working out for everybody else. And otherwise, they can find me on Twitter at MTG Critic, as well as via my occasional articles on MTGPrice.com and my constant presence in the MTG Price Discord servers. Yeah, and I am on Twitter at WizardBumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N. I write every Monday for MTG Price doing the Watchtower series, uh, and I pop into Discord every now and then to grace it with my presence as they say um i'd also like to sorry, rem- go ahead i'd also like to remind our listeners to check out the mtgprice.com pro trader service for just 4.99 a month or 49.99 per year you can get early access to this podcast fantastic articles by the best mtg finance minds in the business and a sweet set of online collection management and buy list tools that will drive better returns and save you money playing magic the gathering okay and that is the end of episode 156 for those keeping score at home, that is the end of our third year. Woo! Join us, yeah, woo! Join us next week when we begin year four. And God willing, we might have something special for you. I don't know yet. Uh, we will see. James, it has been a lot of fun, and I will see you next week. Thank you, Travis. We'll see y'all next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance. <laughs>